Hello everybody. This sermon is the second in our series looking at the women in Jesus's line. And today we're looking at Rahab from Joshua 2, a story of peace. Back in August, I conducted the funeral of Len Powell. He was a lovely old man who sadly I only got to meet for the short few weeks before his death. Len had lived a very active life. He was full of stories from growing up in rural Shropshire, surviving the war, working with famous gardeners and erecting marquees in all sorts of weather on Isla. But it was not to tell any of these that he requested to see me. Len knew he was getting frailer. In truth, he knew that for him this was the end, and he wanted to talk to the minister, a minister that he'd never met before, because he wanted reassurance. Len had grown up in a family of devout faith. He was a choir boy for a time, but for many years he had not attended church at all. As death approached, that worried him. He wanted me to read to him from his old Bible. He wanted me to pray. He wanted to seek peace with God. I was able to reassure Len of God's love for him to offer again the gospel, and it was a privilege to do so. Ultimately, I must trust him now to the Lord, the good and merciful judge. But I have reason to believe in those final days Len found the peace he so longed for. The peace required to stare death in the face and know you will come out on the other side. In the five weeks up to Christmas, we are looking at Jesus' genealogy. In particularly, we are looking at the five women whose names appear. In the ancient world, genealogies defined who you were and often what you would go on to do. They were your proof of ID, CV and personal references all rolled into one. Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus to show that he was the true Messiah who had come to save Israel and the world. In Matthew's eyes, Jesus was the fulfilment and climax of all God's promises. But the presence of these five women would have shocked the original Jewish readers of his gospel. Genealogies usually only contain details of the men. So what were these women doing there? Who were they and what did they get up to? Most importantly, what did they have to say about who Jesus is and what he came to do? Last week we looked at the first of these women, Tamar. Tamar's desperate tale showed us the brokenness of the world and the pain caused by human sin. It was distressing to read, but in the end we came to a place of hope. We discovered that God loves the oppressed and has compassion on sinners. Indeed, Jesus came into the world to offer forgiveness and pave the way for sin to be no more. And when he comes again, There'll be no more of the pain that victims like Tamar experience on a day-to-day basis. We decided that this was very good news indeed. This week we move on to the story of Rahab. There are many similarities to Tamar, but we are going to focus on peace. The peace that can be found even in the face of imminent judgment. I made the comment last week that perhaps one of the most startling things about the inclusion of these women in Jesus's family tree is that they all appear when the men in the land were up to no good. This is very true of Rahab. 
Rahab's story begins with a disturbing question that we nearly always overlook. What were two nice Jewish boys doing in a Jericho brothel? You can try and make excuses for them if you like. Boys will be boys, mixing pleasure with business. But they are all hollow. There is no excuse. They quite simply should not have been there. In staying with the prostitute Rahab, they have fallen for an easy trap. The king of Jericho was staking out Rahab's place, looking for suspected spies. He knew where rowdy young men were likely to turn up. And he wasn't wrong, was he? These two Jewish spies, supposedly members of God's holy people, have just proved that they were no different from any other men. But there is another deeper question to be asked as to whether these two Jewish young men should have been in the land at all. Why does Joshua even need to send a couple of spies into Jericho? If you know the story, Joshua's army is not going to attack the city. They're going to process around it, blow their trumpets, and then God will make the walls fall down. In the Old Testament, Israel regularly get into trouble when they send out spying missions or take up censuses. Their last spying mission, which Joshua himself was a part of, ended up with them wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. When King David counted his fighting men to prepare for battle, the Lord's anger burned against him. The problem with these acts of military intelligence was that they displayed a lack of trust in God. This was the Jewish people trying to take matters into their own hands, a, a lethal mixture of faithlessness and arrogance. Perhaps this is why verse 1 tells us that Joshua sent these two spies out in secret, because he knew darn well that he shouldn't have been doing it. So Rahab's story begins at another moment in Jewish history where the men were hardly covering themselves in glory. But before you think I'm being too harsh, let us recognise that Rahab's own people were up to no good as well. The sheer fact that God is about to take their land away from them shows the height of the Canaanite people's sin. Archaeologists have discovered stone tablets that date from the 15th century BC. They tell of Canaanite mythology, religion and the actions of their rulers. And they're full of lurid tales of religious prostitution, idolatry, witchcraft and divination, and even the brutal sacrifice of children. The Old Testament tells us that God had warned and warned the Canaanites about this. Indeed, he was patient in his judgment, but eventually he had to act. As the Canaanites got more and more powerful, he had to show them that their gods were fake. He had to protect the vulnerable children from being massacred. And ultimately, he wanted to form a bridgehead into the world from which his kingdom could grow and start getting the world back on track. This is why the book of Joshua takes place. God is clearing the promised land so his people could grow in holiness and go on to bless all the world. However, sadly, all that good intention had to begin with the rightful judgment of the Canaanites and the destruction of immoral cities like Jericho. Rahab's people were on the verge of being judged 
for their terrible behaviour. The question we must ask ourselves now then is, what makes Rahab so different from her fellow countrymen? At first glance, Rahab is part of what is wrong with Jericho. She is part of the reason judgment is coming to that den of iniquity. She is a prostitute, after all. But that judgment is far too simplistic, and misses an important piece of context. Women in the ancient world never entered prostitution just because they liked sex. No, they were forced into it. Prostitutes back then were treated awfully by men. They were used and then disapproved of, picked up and then shunned. This was no career choice. Women were driven into prostitution for economic reasons. We find out in verse 12 and 13 that Rahab is seeking to provide for her family, her father and mother, brother and sister. They're clearly struggling to make ends meet and Rahab's compassion for them has led her into this hazardous path. Rahab was probably either very young, forced out to work, or else she was a widow. She lived on the edge of a violent and immoral society. Part of it, but not really part of it. She entered a brutal existence that would have been damaging her physically, mentally and spiritually. It is for these reasons that we soon discover that Rahab is a humble woman. Let's face it, she could hardly be proud of her position. Rahab knows what it is to be vulnerable. Consequently, when she hears that the Israelites have crossed the Red Sea, defeated two Amorite kings, and now wait just on the opposite bank of the Jordan River, ready to attack, she is afraid. In fact, Rahab is full of fear for the act of judgment that is coming their way. Listen to what she says to the two Jewish spies who have taken up this rather suspicious lodging in her apartments. Verse 9. I know that the Lord has given this land to you. Wow, that's some statement. She seems more confident of God's provision than even Joshua himself, who took the precaution of sending the spies out. But then even more amazing. Verse 11. The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Those are astonishing words to come from the mouth of a Jericho prostitute. The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Rahab, it seems, is ready to abandon Canaan and its false gods. She has experienced the fruit of Canaanite worship in all its utter degradation. She has been used and abused by the upstanding men of Canaanite society, and she has seen through the sham. In all of her pain and brokenness, when Rahab heard the story of the Israelites and their God, it sounded like good news. He was a God of awesome power, a God who might be able to do something about the wicked in her land. But here was a God who was also kind with it. He had just gone to incredible lengths to rescue his people from Egyptian slavery. As Rahab hears of the Israelites camped just a short distance away, ready to execute God's righteous judgment on her city, she decides that she will throw herself on God's mercy and ask him to be kind to her as well. It's an incredible moment. 
Rahab knows barely anything about Israel's God, only the bare bones, but she knows enough. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, the God of judgment and mercy, power and kindness, and she will submit to him. And by doing so, she sets an example for both Canaanite and Jewish men to behold. The question that some of us might want to ask at this point is, how do we know Rahab's newfound faith was genuine? How do we know she wasn't just putting on an act, trying to save her own skin when she knew her city was in trouble? After all, she was a woman used to telling a good lie or two. Well, the Bible makes it very clear throughout both Testaments that true faith is always demonstrated by a person's actions. That is why we must question why the spies were in the brothel and why Joshua sent them in the first place. True faith should change the way we behave. If we use that term of faith in action, Rahab's trust in the Lord is clear. When she hears that the king wants the two spies, she takes them and hides them on her roof. She then sends the Jericho soldiers in the wrong direction before helping the spies to escape. Verse 12 puts these actions in interesting language. It says Rahab showed kindness to them. The word translated kindness is that special Hebrew word hesed. The word used in other places to describe God's covenantal love towards his people. In other words, Rahab treats the spies as if she were an Israelite, one of God's own people herself, and she asks that they might treat her the same way. Rahab then follows all this by tying a scarlet cord in her window, so that when the impending attack on Jericho takes place, she and her household will be spared. Think about that for a moment. We know Rahab's place is being watched by the king. Yet here she hangs an obvious cord from the window, a cord everyone could see. It would have raised questions from passers-by, which Rahab would have had to answer. Now, we don't know how she answered them, and we know she could bend the truth a little. But perhaps even this act is another sign of Rahab's radical trust. She will engage in a revealing act if that is what it takes. So no, Rahab did not have a complete knowledge of Israel's God. She not dotted the I's and crossed the T's of her theology, but she had faith, a sincere, deep act of trust, throwing herself on God's mercy and pleading for his pardon. When you read the book of Joshua, you have to wait until chapter 6 for the destruction of Jericho. Wonderfully, we discover that Rahab and her family were spared this awful act of God's holy judgment. Indeed, verse 25 of that chapter tells us that afterwards, Rahab was welcomed in to the people of Israel. From there, she goes on to marry Salmon, who Jewish tradition tells us was one of those spies who visited her place of work. They then had a son called Boaz, who was righteous and godly and importantly, an ancestor of Jesus. In short, in the end, Rahab finds peace. If we are honest, many of us struggle with God's judgment in the Bible, particularly stories like the fall of Jericho. But there is an important truth we must notice. 
when God threatens ultimate judgment, that always presupposes the clause, unless you repent. You will be judged unless you repent. You will experience loss and destruction unless you repent. You will know my wrath unless you repent. For then you will know mercy and pardon, love and blessing. Rahab models to us the way we should respond to the announcement of righteous justice. She submits to the Lord God of heaven and earth. She seeks to help his people. She acts with radical, practical faith. Rahab's place in history was enshrined when the Holy Spirit led Matthew to include her in the genealogy of Jesus. Her presence there reminds us that even in the face of certain and justified judgment, peace with God is always available through faith. Throughout church history, much has been made of the red cord. The story itself in Joshua 2 says very little about it. But ever since the early church, that cord has been seen as a type and symbol of Christ's blood shed on the cross. A blood red cord that saves the life of a poor woman of faith. Surely this teaches that if we trust in Christ and demonstrate active faith, we will be spared from judgment too. The Bible actually never makes that connection specifically, but by ensuring that Rahab is recorded in Jesus' genealogy, Matthew is clearly making a strong link for us. At Christmas, we celebrate Jesus coming into the world to save people from God's righteous judgment. We're all worthy of punishment for our behaviour. Indeed, the Bible says we are all worthy of death. But because Jesus was human and died for us in our place, that judgment was taken onto him. We can now be spared if we turn from our sin and turn to Christ. Wonderfully, we can know peace because his blood was shed. As Paul wrote to the Colossians, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That peace is available to us all. It was available to Rahab. It was available to Len Powell. And it was available to you and me. Even the greatest outsiders can discover God's peace when they turn to him. This is surely the reason to celebrate as Christmas approaches and to tell as many people as we can about who Jesus is and what he came to do.